electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much, and welcome to Halftime. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the other Super Bowl. Only the one happening in the market this week, the Fed meeting, jobs report, critical earnings from the biggest tech companies on earth. It is, quite simply, make it or break it for your money. And the investment committee is here to size it all up. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Bill Baruch, Liz Young, Joe Terranova. Good to have everybody in the house. All hands on the proverbial deck. Let's check the markets. There we go. We are down across the board. NASDAQ's been the underperformer all day, down about one and a quarter percent. But we're red across the board. 354, the yield on the 10-year note. Liz Young, 20% of the S&P 500. Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Fed decision, jobs report, Wolf Research, I thought today summed it all up perfectly. Bear market rally or sustained bounce, right? Don't, that's the debate that we've all been having. They say this week will be critical. Will we be proven right or wrong? All Is the it? marbles, right? All the marbles. All of them. All the eggs in the basket. Any other cliches? Everything. Let's yeah. throw them all out. <laughs> don't, don't count your money at the table. I don't know. So, backs, Marcus backs against the wall. <laughs> Climbing a wall of worry. Take it one day at a time. <laughs> Big week. The, the biggest week, and I think we say that almost every time we have a week like this, but this really is a really big week. I think there's a couple things that are absolutely imperilous to watch. And the first thing is what Jerome Powell says, and I, I say this all the time, I'm going to repeat it here, the most dangerous time to trade is between 2 and 2.30 p.m. on Fed Day. The market reacts initially to the data, then he starts talking and tells it what to really react to, and it changes course usually. Now, remember, what's going to happen this time is we're probably going to hear a similar message from him. Rates are going to stay high. Inflation is still a problem. But I think what we're going to start hearing from him is much more of a focus on the labor market. And then we're going to get a big jobs report on Friday. If that Mm -hmm. jobs report is strong, the market is not going to like it. All right. So, Joe, Wolf, by the way, whom whom I quote, their their firm, they've been negative Mm -hmm. right throughout. They say we continue to believe this will prove to be just another bear market rally. And they say earnings support their case. 143 S&P 500 companies reported already. The aggregate EPS surprise is running at its lowest level since the financial crisis. Guidance is on track to be the weakest it's been since 2011. And the post-report price action has been almost non-existent. They say Powell's going to be hawkish. Watch out. If you had to place a percentage on the number of individuals that have come on this network in the last 60 days and said, on January 1st, I want you to have concentrated exposure towards high beta. What do you think that percentage would be? Because I think it would be less than 10%. And I think that's exactly what's going on in the market right now. So you're asking me if it's a bear market bounce. It's a bear market bounce for high, be- <clears throat> for high beta. For high beta, it is a bear market bounce. As far as a sustained recovery, it's a sustained recovery for the areas of the market that are blue chip, for areas of the market that are showing the profitability and the resilience 
Those areas of the market, I'll acknowledge, they're not working right now. It's where I'm allocated towards. So I'm underperforming the market right now. But I do not believe that this is the time or the moment based on what Liz is describing that Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve are going to have to present to the market the hawkishness, in particular, at that press conference. I just don't think you want to make that pivot towards high beta strategies. Well, I mean, the, the positive case in the market has been a little bit better and easier to make of late. The question is, is it legit? Because the internals have been pretty good. I mean, they've been better, right? The advanced decline line highest since September, larger number than 52-week highs than lows. A lot of that has to do with the calendar and when we obviously topped out last year. Growth and value doing fairly decent. And 66% of S&P 500 stocks are above their 200-day moving average. That according to Piper Sandler. Can you make a more positive case? And if you believe we can, is it legit? Is it legit? A positive case would be made if you anticipate that the Fed is going to ease off the gas. I mean, from a from a the perspective of what Liz and Joe have just talked about, the Fed has given no indication. And there is a narrative that's coming through in a lot of pieces that I'm reading from some strategists that the Fed is going to pivot away from their focus on employment. That I, I, I don't see any rationale for that. I don't see any Uh, credibility to that view, because in their mind, the only way that they're able to anchor us to the target rate of inflation that they're looking for is for us to have more weakness in the labor market. I hear the outcry from tech companies. Look at what you're doing from uh, an employment perspective. We don't need to lose these jobs. We can just stand firm here. But then there would be an acceleration, to Joe's point, back into high beta. We'd start to see some of the speculation, some of the speculative behavior coming back into the market. And so when I look at this next week, the, the only thing that could really support the rally, I think, over the next couple of weeks to persist would be a, a clear indication from the Fed that they feel that they've made massive strides in terms of getting inflation under control. And just from a, an absolute perspective, it's really hard to make that argument when we have so much hiring continuing, the jobs market being as strong as it is, and wage growth still not contained. We're continuing to see sizable wage growth gains that are well above the rate of inflation that the, the, the that is targeted. See, J- Jeremy Siegel was on with me in overtime, and he still thinks you can do 15% in the market this year in the S&P, but he also thinks the Fed's going to pivot and actually cut rates in this calendar year. Um, some people are trying to get on that train. Is that a false hope? I'm, I'm upbeat on the market. I think we'll see 15%. You're upbeat on, on the, the market? market, but not from this level. So, so let's take a step back. What and does say, that mean? Well, I, I think that we've run too far too quick. We've started to see the froth come back in the market. And that's why I think we'll see Jackson Hole Powell on Wednesday. We're not going to see Christmas Powell. We're going to see a very Was that pop- eight minutes of pain? I think we're, yeah, I think we're going to see this market come like back eight in. Minutes? Like the eight minutes. Inflation is the conversation. And, they, and they, they're not cl- declaring victory on inflation yet. We never heard a single Fed chairman say victory on inflation. So when we look at it, I think consumer spending is very strong. I pointed out last week that retail sales for January, I expect a blowout number in the middle of February. Consumer spending has been there. And if you look at January retail sales the last two years, it's two of the top three month-over-month numbers. Well, why was retail weak last time? Because it wasn't in January last two years. In December, no, no, was, no, I'm not talking about the last two years. I'm talking about last month. Okay. Well, holiday spending has changed. We can order any type of good when on demand. Was, holiday, holiday spending is not what it was a decade ago. But then we take, a, we take a step back as well. The froth is coming back into the market, too. We're not trading monkey JPEGs anymore, but we're, we're trading zero DTE options. People are out there, and they're speculating. The, the layoffs are just coming back in. And another way to think the layoffs is these tech companies, they, every year they lay off about 3%. And they have 
that over the pandemic, they never laid off anybody. When so you talk about so they're just fraud, cutting you, back. When you talk about Bitcoin at like 23K and ARC up 28% month to date, is I'm that what you're referring to? Tesla that? up 60%, yes, and, and ARC up 28% year to date. So there's froth coming back in the market, but it's also speculative froth with the zero DTE options. I don't want to focus too much time on that, but there's speculative froth coming back into the market. And I think that is going to concern Powell when you have a strong retail sales. And then if you get these ebbs and flows in inflation, if, if we see retail sales steadily strong over the next first quarter, over the first quarter and into the second quarter, inflation is going to come back right as housing may come down. And services inflation is the real concern. And there's no sign that service inflation is going to start coming down at all. I mean, Jeremy Siegel also, by the way, of this high beta or froth or tech, however you want to refer yep. to it, said to fade it. I want you to listen to what he said. We can kick it on the other side because it's such a huge week for those companies. I can explain that bounce back in, in tech. Do I think it has legs? I don't think it's going to outperform the rest of the market from this point on for the rest of the year. I think it's a technical snapback from intense selling in November and December, uh, uh, aided by the drop in interest rates that we've seen. Right. Sort of clear and obvious as to why those stocks have been rallying. Now, they've surprised some people, but fade it. We did a good job of explaining why this would ultimately happen at the end of the year. The most intense tax loss harvesting season that we've witnessed since 2008. You had Jeffrey Gunlock on. Jeffrey identified the potential for that to occur. And I think this is the reflex reaction to that tax loss selling in a lot of areas of technology. I don't think you could define all of technology as being high beta or, or frothy or, or junk no, but oriented. The NAS, no, it's not. But the Nasdaq's up 11% this month. And the, the ARC stocks maybe have outrun traditional tech, mm -hmm. but it's not like those stocks haven't gone up either. I don't think that's long term. Most of them have, except yeah, for Microsoft. I, and I don't think that's long term money that's being allocated there. I think that's short term money playing a potential recovery off an abysmal year. I mean, do you consider Amazon high beta? I don't consider Amazon high right. beta. It's but up I, 19%. Do okay. you consider Alphabet high beta? I consider Amazon a example of a stock that's responding to significant tax loss. But selling. do you consider Apple high beta? I no, consider, my point, right? My point is that it's up 11%, and, and Alphabet's up 10.5%. So, like, all of tech has moved. Siegel is not necessarily speaking to froth or high base, speaking right. of the tech bounce okay, itself. Okay, but we're acknowledging the same thing. I'm saying that some of technology, the names that you're identifying, they are having a reflex reaction to the tax loss selling. They're not high beta, you're correct. But they are rallying and part of this 11% NASDAQ rally because of tax loss selling. The other, the bifurcation is that within the NASDAQ, you do have stocks like Roblox and other uh, what I would call hyper growth names that are rallying not on fundamentals, but they're rallying because the speculative excesses are re-entering the market once again because there's the belief that the Federal Reserve is not only going to have to pause, but cut rates at some point in 2023, which I disagree Where, with. Where, Shannon, is the biggest risk right now? Is it that, that Powell is dovish or hawkish? Is it that the, the market has gone up to start the year enough that the risk to me seems that he throws a wet blanket on all of that. Which, which he has done, and to Liz's point earlier, in every presser for the last year. I mean, he's taken the statement and turned it into as hawkish a pronouncement as possible in every single Sure, but meeting. now he's further down the road of the rate hikes. 
Right, but you can only point to that as being something that's taken some of the uncertainty out of the market. That, but the market is is latching onto the fact that because it's shorter, closer to the end of the cycle, that we're going to actually truncate the cycle. That's the risk. There is no evidence that they are going to truncate the cycle. There is no evidence that he's going to come out in any of the next three meetings and be dovish for any reason other than we if we see a meaningful deterioration in economic data. And there is nothing in the secondary data, the tertiary data, any of the anecdotal data that we're looking at from a survey perspective that points to that. Yeah, but what he says is different than what they do. You can say, well, he's not going to come out in the next three meetings and be dovish. Well, he, he doesn't necessarily have to if, if his actions express that view. So they're going to raise probably 25 this week. And yeah, I guess there's a fair likelihood that they go 25 next time. If he leads you to believe through their actions that they're done, the market perceives that in and of itself as dovish. The market already doesn't believe what they say because of where the bond market is, right? But your assumption is that what they've done already has already been priced in and transmitted through the economy. That's the big question right now, is that whether it's 25 and 25 or, or 50 and 25 or 25 and zero, the, the expectation that the sharpest, fastest rate hike cycle in 2022 has completely been priced into economic data and that we have three quarters now of kind of upside surprise. Coming back to the stock market, it's about earnings. There's no catalyst for us to think that we're going to have meaningful earnings growth this year. Well, I just read you what Wolf said, right? I mean, they went through it and they gave you uh, because of the earnings, the aggregate EPS surprise running at its lowest level since the great financial crisis, guidance on track to be the weakest since 2011, and the post-report price action has been almost non-existent. Three telling points about earnings thus far. They may not have fallen off the proverbial cliff, but they haven't been fabulous yeah. by any stretch. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Amazon, on the, on the heels of Microsoft's call last week, that was down more than 5% within that hour after hours. So I'm worried about the reaction to earnings. I'm worried about some of, this, some of the SaaS developments. But at the end of the day, too, I think this is going to be a stock picker's market as the year develops. Not from this level. I'm, I, I think there's, the risks are now skewed to the downside. But if it could come in, there's going to be a stock picker's market, a story of haves and have-nots. Those that have written down their revenue and earnings expectations significantly, like a micron, and then those that have not. So I think that's what we're going to see here in the coming months. Why aren't the risks starting to skew to the upside, right? They've been so skewed to the downside for, for a year. Why aren't they now turning? Well, if, if, first of all, we're talking about a January rally. Yes, it's been ferocious, but we're forgetting that even if the NASDAQ is up 11% in January, it was down 9% in December. S&P was down 6% in December. Now it's up 6%. Okay, so we're back to where we started. No, I got December, you. The S&P's right? up 5%, though. I mean, I, I hear you on the NASDAQ, but as, as I said at the top, you know, there is an, a, a better story to be told if you, you know, look at some of the, whether it's the internals or the fact that earnings haven't completely evaporated or the fact that the consumer is, is reasonably strong, that the jobs data is strong. Some of the leading economic indicators have been a little bit weaker, but a lot of the other information has been pretty decent. The leading economic indicators are a lot weaker. If you look at just the six-month change in the LEI, it's down 8.2%. That's never gotten below negative 3% without a recession to follow. So there's really some irrefutable evidence that things are not getting better. And the end of a hiking cycle means the beginning of economic pain. It takes six to 12 months. So even if we're getting to the point where the hiking cycle is maturing, that means the economic falling apart piece is just starting. And we're getting some of that data that's coming in. What's now not priced into the market 
is a recession, a classic recession. And also what's not priced into the market is earnings actually going through a pretty big contraction. I You've think both made, of those are very possible. Haven't you made the argument recently, and I know you did in yep. overtime with me, that the recession is priced into I the market? I do think, absolutely. For risk assets, hard landing without question unfolded in 2022. The market has already priced that in. And the Federal Reserve holds a stamp in their possession on Wednesday, okay? They could stamp the passport for the high beta strategy, for the risk on mentality to move forward if they do not, in that press conference, adopt a hawkish tone. They're basically stamping that passport and saying, okay, move forward. They're saying that the financial conditions, which are now the easiest that they've been since February, that they're comfortable with that. I don't want to use the words loss of credibility, but that is certainly counter to the message and communication from the Federal Reserve over the last 60 days. And what does it do? It confirms exactly what the fixed income markets are telling you. It confirms exactly what the inversion of the yield curve is telling you, that in fact an economic contraction is present and is being priced in. And don't tell me that there is not a recession in various industries already in this country. I know, but how because there a, is. How is a recession priced into the stock market if we've rallied off the lows to the degree that we because have. you're thinking about a recession when I say you I don't mean I mean that with all respect I mean in general people are trying to use the word recession universally you can't do it we're coming out of a pandemic this is not going to be a normal recession it's not universal anymore don't compare it to 2000 and 2001 or 2008 or the early 80s or the 70s. This is different. There's going to be resiliency in certain industries where there'll be no recession. And then other areas, there's going to be a very deep, significant recession. Okay, so what Do you happens- think there's a recession right now in the financial services industry? I'll tell you, in fact, there is. Okay. Let's talk about some of the moves you guys are making ahead of these big events this week, because there are a few interesting ones. Shannon, you go first. I mean, you sold Merck, which is one of Joe's favorite stocks. Ooh. Ooh, I know. So <laughs> do you want to tell our viewers why you did that? So, uh, yes, I, I will. So we sold Merck um, significantly outperformed the S&P 500 last year. And this is a good company. It's a good stock. Um, but they increasingly have uh, a large amount of revenues that are being generated from Keytruda, um, unlike AbbVie, which we believe has done a great job of supplementing the pipeline behind Humira, we don't believe that the, that the pipeline is as strong behind Keytruda. And so from our perspective, you know, we've gotten a lot of the gains sort of pulled forward into 2022. There could still be continued earnings improvement and earnings growth in this stock, um, but we would like to see them growing that pipeline. And we think that that might become a little bit pricey as they're looking for M&A acquisitions in order to do that. Um, so we're a little bit more concerned about kind of the homegrown pipeline pipeline at Merck. Okay. You bought Medtronic. We did. Um, So we actually sold this stock in the middle of last year um, on execution issues, not just supply chain, but really looking at it from a product perspective. Um, And the stock has re-rated significantly. It's significantly cheaper than it was obviously last year. But more importantly, there's a new management team. Um, And we think that if given some improvement in terms of the depth and breadth of their product pipeline, but also most importantly, in management's ability to execute this valuation is undemanding and look, it looks quite, quite attractive at this point, along with the dividend yield. So we added it back into the portfolio on our, on the, in our dividend portfolio. We own Stryker as well in our growth portfolio. And so medical equipment, we believe that the big risk here is that we don't see the continued growth in procedure volume coming out of the pandemic. But we're willing to take that chance given, given the valuation on the stock. Okay, thank you. Joe, you sold Walmart. I did. Why did you do that? Because sometimes time is your exit, not so much price. 
been sitting in this stock now for the better part of 90 days. Fundamentally, nothing has come to fruition that I expected in the thesis. Bed Bath & Beyond going bankrupt. I should have benefited Walmart. That hasn't benefited Walmart. You haven't seen um, that shoppers are going to Walmart in a trade-down environment. Groceries supposed to be strong. That hasn't come to reality. So time sometimes is a better exit than price. 90 days. I mean, I'm sitting, a I'm patient, right? Number one, number one, I'm sitting here with a loss. Grow very uncomfortable with losses in your portfolio. Seem irritable. Grow very <laughs> uncomfortable. Well, you know what's coming this week. Does anybody else notice that? You grow very uncomfortable with losses in your portfolio. And the, the time value of money, especially in this environment, is so critical. I think there are other places that I can be and acknowledging that you're wrong, which is what I am in Walmart. I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong. All right. I mean, because the Bed Bath & Beyond thing is still playing out. Mm-hmm. The consumer, I mean, that's not a lot of time to give the consumer to start to trade down. Right. The consumer is in such a strong place that 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 story needs to play out. I don't know. I think you would have seen it. You would have seen this stock begin to build build momentum. I think others would have recognized looking forward. The market's a great discounting mechanism. What's it down in the 90 days? If in fact. uh, So I bought the stock somewhere around 149 before I came on the show. I think stock was trading somewhere around 142 and a quarter ish. Um, so, So eight bucks and you're out. Absolutely. Take the loss. Move on. Small losses. That's what the game is about. But thinking about what you're saying, it's a short period of time for the fundamental thesis to come to come to reality. I think a lot of people can see what what I also saw fundamentally with this company, what the thesis should be that potentially in 2023, you're going to get a trade down effect that's ultimately going to happen. You're going to have investors that are realizing big ticket pricing is going to be a challenge to their budget. They need to go to a place like Walmart. Well, the market discounts that. The market prices it in, and the market wasn't pricing it in. The market and Walmart is trading like all of the variables that I'm applying into this thesis are incorrect. All right. Coming up, shares of J&J. They're dropping after a major setback today over its talc lawsuits. The details and what it means now for J&J investors. We'll do that in two minutes when we come back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
All right, we're back. J&J shares, they're falling today on new developments in the company's talc bankruptcy case. Our Meg Terrell joins us now with more. This uh, report just came out a short time ago. Shares just started moving. Feels like it's just filtering through the market, Meg. What do we need to know? Yeah, Scott, this is a big decision by the uh, U.S. appeals court, essentially tossing out J&J's attempt to put its talc liabilities into bankruptcy. Now, this has been going on for a long time now, and there are more than 38,000 suits that have been filed against J&J claiming that its talc, baby powder, and similar products have been linked to cancer. Now, as J&J was litigating these individually, it won some, it lost some, some were settled, uh, you know, one... Uh, 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 awarded had to pay was more than $2 billion. And so it did this sort of complicated maneuver known uh, as a Texas two-step, where it took out the liabilities and put them into its own unit and then filed that for bankruptcy. And this has been working its way through the court system. Uh, but now this appeals court has essentially said, that's not going to work. Uh, they say, quote, good intentions, such as to protect the J&J brand or comprehensively resolve litigation, do not suffice alone. What counts to access the bankruptcy code's safe harbor is to meet its intended purposes. Only a putative debtor in financial distress can do so. LTL, which is the name of that entity it created, was not. Thus, we dismiss its petition. Uh, J&J already saying here it plans to challenge the Third Circuit Circuit's ruling. Uh, it says it initiated this process in good faith, and its objective has been to equitably resolve claims related to the company's cosmetic talc litigation. It says the ruling does not reflect the facts established during the bankruptcy court's trial regarding the appropriateness of the formation and filing, nor does the company's intention to officially resolve the cosmetic talc litigation for the benefit of all parties, including current and uh, future claimants. Uh, so this is going to continue. They could potentially uh, appeal. We'll see if they take it up to an even higher court. And Scott, it'd be very interesting if they did so because they're not the only company to try to use this quote-unquote Texas two-step idea. This is something that's been used a, a number of times before. So whether the Supreme Court wants to take that up and consider it as a larger corporate question uh, could be something to watch. Scott? We're definitely watching it today. You, you mentioned uh, a $2 billion, I think you said, resolution in, in one of the cases. Do you have any idea what estimates have been or or may be in terms of total liability that J&J could face as a result of all of this litigation? It's so hard to try to figure that out because, you know, 38,000 cases, potentially more coming in. And J&J's whole argument in doing this was it said, you know, we can't take on all of these individually. We have to you know, put a stop to it somehow and, you know, set aside a certain amount of money. They said $2 billion they'd sort of put aside for this, for all of it. You know, if they have to take it back now and go through these one by one, what could that amount to? I haven't seen uh, good estimates on that. And maybe we'll start to see them now as analysts start to parse through this. But certainly it was not the outcome J&J wanted. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate the reporting. Uh, Meg, thank you very much. That's Meg Terrell joining us here on, on the Halftime Report. So you own it in the Joe T. Um, you know, this sort of shifts the the burden or the liability to the balance sheet, perhaps. Yeah, that's so, what the market worry is. So they have to have a loss provision. Um, the two billion dollar settlement, which in 21 ultimately, I think, went to the Supreme Court, was uh, four billion dollars that was set aside. Two billion dollars ultimately was paid out. So you have to make the determination here. What's the loan loss? Uh, not the loan loss. What's the provision uh, going to be here? Uh, potentially. So that really creates an environment where the stock might be a little bit sideways for some time. And also, it's interesting because on this move, if you pull up 3M, 
3M's down a little because they're trying to use a similar Texas two-step strategy. They've got uh, some lawsuits with military veterans with earplugs impeding uh, the loss of uh, hearing. So 3M's down as well. But I think as an owner of J&J, I think you just have to expect now that this might be at best tread water. All right. So we're up. We'll call it the lows of the day uh, for J&J down about three percent. A little bit more than that, as you see up next, the ETFs you need to watch right now. Plus, we are following the flows into some of the hottest parts of the tech trade. We've got those trades coming up next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. A drone targeted a military munitions factory in central Iran over the weekend in an attack that country's foreign minister called cowardly. There were no casualties in the strike. Intelligence officials are quoted in multiple reports blaming Israel, but no country has claimed responsibility. At a Virginia school where a six-year-old shot his teacher earlier this month, the principal has been removed from her role, and she is the latest official to lose her job in the wake of the shocking elementary school shooting that injured the 25-year-old teacher. The school's assistant principal resigned last week, and the superintendent was ousted after a board vote. And in Australia, a search is underway for a tiny radioactive capsule believed to be lost off a truck. Authorities are scouring a nearly 900-mile stretch of road after Rio Tinto lost track of the potentially lethal and radioactive substance that was used as part of its mining operation. Officials warn anyone who finds it to stay at least 15 feet away. Though if you find it, it makes me believe that you'd be closer than that. I was kind of wondering how you do that as well. Yeah. Uh, We'll see. (laughs) I don't know. Contessa, thank you. Sure. Contessa Brewer. Now to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Bob? That is an amazing story, Scotty. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Tech ETF sold waves of selling in 2022, but some of that has begun to reverse in 2023. Thematic tech investing is back. Electric vehicles, social media, robotics, and AI, fintech, even cloud computing, far outperforming the S&P in January. Let's talk to the king of thematic tech ETFs, as I like to call him. John Mayer is the chief investment officer at Globex, uh, Global X ETFs. Uh, John, uh, most of these thematic tech ETFs you're associated with, they saw outflows in 2022, but now they're up double digits in 2023. Looking at the flows, is there any signs investors are trying to pitch a bottom here in, ET- in, in tech? Well, you know, I think you had such a massive sell-off in you know, last year that you're seeing a bounce back. Tax law selling was huge. This year, you're seeing a bounce back in almost every area, whether it be large tech or some of these thematic names. And the names are, are double digits. Sometimes it's 15 and 20 percent. I think people are re-risking to a certain degree, and you are seeing some inflows. But people are being cautious overall. I mean, this is typically January. You see a bounce. So um, you're also seeing some tailwinds. 
ChatGPT, of course, yeah. is driving some of the AI exposure. Yeah, you, I've got, let me follow up on ChatGPT. It's all the rage. Your two ETFs really interact with this theme. You have the robotics AI ETF. You have the cloud computing ETF. Uh, have we finally arrived at this point where we have AI as a service? They've been talking about this for years, but where you can have companies license the technology here, say for ChatGPT, and actually have a subscription service around it. AI as a service. Is that now actually going to be feasible in some way? Well, think, think about when ChatGPT, OpenSI came out with ChatGPT in November. Five days later, there are a million subscribers. My son tried to get onto this last night and subscribe, waiting list. So it's, there's a, a huge amount of interest. Microsoft obviously take, took two positions, a much larger position. Microsoft is not buying it for the, from, the good, from the good of their heart. They want to monetize it. So AI as a service is something that's going to happen in the future for sure. You're also going to see replication of this um, technology by Google, yeah. by Amazon. So it's going to continue. This is just the start. It's I'm, I'm wondering about the cybersecurity implications of this thing. It, it, you, this can write code, ChatGPT, and it creates an environment. It seems like individuals can have create malicious software, essentially, around all of this. Uh, I would think cybersecurity threats would actually increase under ChatGPT, wouldn't it? And, and I see your cybersecurity ETF is actually underperforming this yeah. year. What, why is that, given that it would seem there's more threats, not less threats? Sure. You, you think about cybersecurity. First of all, top-line growth for many of these cybersecurity companies inside of BUG, B-U-G, R-E-T-F, um, continue to rise. You also look at private equity. It, it tailed off in the third quarter, but it's, it's increased in the fourth quarter and increased meaningful, meaningfully. Toma Brava, uh, Vista Equity. So you are seeing an increase in um, ac private e equity activity. And once you see that first cyber attack, that's when the spending is going to continue and the stock, that, those stocks are going to stop underperforming relative to the rest of the themes. We're going to talk a lot more about this. I can see people putting in their tax returns into this and asking <laughs> them to make, give, give you a more efficient tax return, disclosing all sorts of information. We're going to have a lot more uh, with John on ETF Edge at 3 p.m. Eastern time. John's going to be joined by Kevin Simpson, the founder and chief investment officer at Capital Wealth Planning. He utilizes ETFs in his financial advisory services. That's etfedge.cnbc.com. That's 3 p.m. Eastern time. Scott, back to you. Bob, thank you. Just ahead, NXP Semi getting ready to report earnings in overtime AMD tomorrow morning. The chip starting the year off very strong after a difficult last year. Is the group out of the woods yet? We discuss that next. NXP Semi reports in overtime today, offering more insight into the state of the semi trade. The group has posted big gains this month. Christina Partsinevelos is following that money for us, joins us now. I mean, that is, welcome, one of the biggest issues for these stocks. They've done a lot. AMD, 14% this month. NXP, 15.5%. Qualcomm, 20%. STX, 29%. NVIDIA, 36%. So the bar keeps going up as the stocks do. So that's why I was looking into maybe is this optimism slightly a little too premature. And I say that because, yeah, you had Intel. The quarter was brutal. But maybe you'll say that's a one-off. Forget that. But what about the warnings that came from Lamb, Wolfspeed, uh, to name a few, Seagate as well? The fact that you mentioned you have AMD out tomorrow. AMD is still highly exposed to the PC and data center market. And then Samsung. There was a Korean newspaper that is alluding to the fact that Samsung may be cutting CapEx. They're a huge player in the space if they're cutting capex capex doesn't bode well however 
optimism just continues, continues. And there's several different reasons for that. You've got maybe some investors that are buying before these last cuts, others that uh, still say, hey, there's a lot of resilience in auto, which bodes well for NXP. NXP, out, right? Out That's what I was just bell. thinking. Yep. China recovery, Microsoft increasing CapEx, and chat GPT, which actually plays a good role for uh, NVIDIA, which is up, what, almost 40% year to date? So then Shannon, who owns AMD, should not be so worried on a read through from Intel? No, they sh- that's the opposite. If you anything, think she should? Yeah. Because, well, that's the thing, because most people were saying, well, it probably was an Intel story. Right? Most people, there's, it depends. There was a note from Morgan Stanley saying that they're, they're, they possibly have the, faced the same risk given its exposure to data centers. Maybe mm. it not, uh, We're not talking about the weakness in management at Intel and all of the other problems with Intel, but you still have to think that the last quarter in 2022 was horrible for smartphones. AMD is exposed, and then you're starting to see the weakness in data centers. Okay, Shan, so? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think there is some concern in terms of overall demand in, in the report tomorrow. However, the thesis why we bought AMD last year was because we felt that they were going to be able to continue to capture share gains versus Intel. And so if, if our thesis plays out, the mismanagement, the execution issues that Intel continues to have really point to the fact that we've positioned appropriately, albeit perhaps a little bit early given the yeah. cyclical and, and inventory issues that we're having with, with AMD. But from our perspective, when we start to hit that ramp, um, they're going to have greater, greater share. Um, as they come out of But that. then you're telling me that the market share that they may steal from Intel will offset any type of declines that you're seeing in other segments. I, I think that the enthusiasm about that potential for a recovery in some of these cyclical trends will, will, create, an, will create optimism around the stock, yeah. Good follow-up. Um, also, you have Texas Instruments, right? I do. They were cautious. They it's were. not like that was a home run uh, report. And then you've got analog devices, Broadcom, KLA, Microchip, Qualcomm on semi in the, in the T. In the Joe T. So PC shipments down 17% in 2022. Consensus for 2023 is down 13%. That's a lot of negative news that's already being priced in. Um, I think when you look at the semis, where Shannon has an advantage with AMD is it's a more diversified business stream than, let's say, necessarily Intel. I think there's areas of the semi industry where you've seen the worst. I do think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in some of the semiconductor names. So you do the agree exposure. Then. Because this, this, the, the crux of the report is, you know, not out of the woods just yet. You would no, agree with that. I would agree with that. We're not out of the woods just yet. I do, as I've said to you before, I think the semi-industry was first into all of this, and I think they'll be the first out of it. I'm okay with Texas Instruments. It's a low beta. It's a mature play. I think we're reconnecting the supply chain, even though we know we have weak demand. I think there are some names like Microchip, KLA, OnSemi, which we own in Joe T and Texas Instruments that can provide you exposure in a more mature way. NVIDIA is up 36%. That's yours. This month. Yeah. I mean, I I think they got ahead of it last year a little bit. Not as much as Micron. AMD that's reporting did get ahead of it as well. Um, Revenues are supposed to be 23 billion in 2022 compared to what were 26 billion. So if these companies get ahead of it, I think the focus is going to shift to 2024. I like the semiconductors as you know, as building a base and kind of showing us some some good promise this year. Lambs, no today, uh, cutting capacity. I mean, this is this is going to flush out that supply demand imbalance. And again, it just starts shifting the focus to 2024. And I, I think that these uh, these are going to be good value or proved to be good value at this area as we look in the. Let's so even look. up in this area, are you talking about after the runs that they've had in this no, area? No, no. Good value? What's in what area? 
I, as this market comes in, as I've said, I do expect a more hawkish Powell, take some froth out of this market. I noted last week the QQQ puts I did buy to get through this earnings season. And I, I think that there's going to be a lot of volatility in the, in the coming week or two. So I'm prepared for that. But as we see this start to come in, you've you got to pick the names that okay. you're going to like as the next six, nine months down the road. I'll see you in overtime. Yeah, NXP. NXP. All right, good stuff. <laughs> That's Christina Parts and Evelos. You'll see her again, as we said, in overtime with those results. Up next, Mike Santoli. He joins us with his Midday Word Plus. We're getting ready to grade your trade. You can email us, askhalftime at CNBC.com. You can tweet us as well. Use the hashtag GradeMyTrade. We will be right back. All right, we're back. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. It's the great hope this week. Is it real or, f- or false? We're yeah. going to find out. Yeah, and Scott, I do, I do think it, it's still hope as opposed to the consensus expectation that the market is going to essentially redeem uh, you know, this, this little rush toward risk that we've gotten in the first month of the year. Uh, I think everybody knew coming into this week that the S&P wasn't going to compound at a 100% annualized rate, which is what it has done in the first month of this year. We still have a couple, 3% uh, of pullback that you could do in the index and still have it be no more than a very routine nick. So that's the place we're in. I'm a little bit comforted that the prevailing thought, I think, coming into today was not you've got to latch onto this rally and just get your piece because it's going to run away from you. It's much more like, okay, we've had a little bit of a run. Don't chase it here. The Fed's there, not likely to, to essentially serve up the exact message that the, that the market's looking for. And, uh, and, you know, earnings, I think I'm sort of encouraged by the general reaction to not so great earnings. But sometimes the complexion of the earnings season changes from week to week based on the expectations built up in the prior uh, week. So uh, certainly on alert for a, a little more uh, of a test on that front. Much convo about, you know, what's going on with the high beta, the so-called froth, yep. the tech stocks. But you're focused in, in many ways on some of these cyclical areas of the market that better confirm to you that this may be, in fact, something new and different, whether it's steel stock performance or credit card sure. issuers, right? Exactly. So, yeah, you absolutely have a lot of the sort of flotsam and jetsam of last year getting uh, carried higher in a hurry. But you do have that other subtle message there where it's whether it's because real assets like steel uh, are in a good you know, supply demand spot right now with China reopening or simply that the bets that were laid in late 2022 that the consumer is really going to fall apart are simply premature or wrong at this point. So I do think that's somewhat encouraging. And again, it's, it's one of those deals where I don't think anybody is really buying it and saying it's a lock. The market, you know, the economy escapes recession, the market's powering higher and the Fed is done and it's going to be actually dovish uh, in the second half of the year. It's much more a maybe that can some of that can happen. And I want to have at least some exposure just in case things break that way. Gotcha. I'll see you in a few hours in overtime. That's Mike right. Santoli That's good. joining us here on the half grade. My trade is up next. Remember, send us an email. Ask halftime at CNBC.com or you can tweet us. We'll do it next. All right, let's grade your trades. First up, Joey, we got Andy in Chicago. Average cost basis in United Health is $501. Time frame, one to two years. Bought some shares in the beginning of December of last year. More shares in the first week of January of this year. If Joe T can answer this question, it would be great. 
Well, I appreciate the can question. Can you answer it? I can answer the question. I appreciate that would be the question. Great. First of all, I like the time frame of one to two years because I think ultimately you're going to be rewarded. If you want to implement a risk management strategy, that would be to under underneath the market to own some puts, maybe own the five, uh, the 475 put. I think that's warranted. Understand right now this stock is a little bit technically broken along with healthcare overall, but you're going to win out over the next two years, just implement some form of options-oriented risk management. All right, Shan, up next, Glenn in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, bought 500 shares of Costco, $459 per share, sold half on Friday, 501, keeping the other half with a target of 525, a stop loss set at 489. You own it. What do you think about this trade here? What should we do? I, I think the risk mitigation here is appropriate. That Costco was up over 10% over the S&P 500 over the last year. Um, it's trading over 30 times uh, forward earnings and and consumer staples is is incredibly expensive. Um, and this is really you know indicative of of that. So I would continue to protect your position. I think longer term the cash flow opportunity here is significant. Um, they have a subscription service that. In, is an annuity, but um, but I would be very careful just given the valuation right now. All right. Randy has a question for Bill. On Disney, 500 shares I bought before Christmas. I'm up 10%. Should I hold or sell? Listen, I, I'm an active manager. I like trimming things after a 25% rally. The only reason I have it, I own this name, is because I didn't get enough on it. I just have my base. But I think the upside overall is 127 to 130. Stay nimble with it. It's going to be a volatile market. All right. Lastly, Liz, uh, to you from Stephen in Philadelphia. I've never had bond exposure because I'm young, 25 years away from retirement. I recently bought TLT at 106. It's now 10% of my Roth IRA. I plan on holding long term and adding on dips when possible. Just curious of what the panel thinks. What do you think? Well, that trade has probably worked well for you until now, not owning bonds because they weren't working in that environment. But this is a good time to have exposure. And I think as a long-term investor, it's a good time to have that long-term bond exposure. If you're adding, though, on dips, I would think about adding to the shorter end of the curve, too. So think about that two-year, at least for the next six to 12 months. All right. Thank you. And keep your trades coming. Again, an email, askhalftime at CNBC.com. You can tweet us, and we will continue to grade your trades. Final trades are next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, 4 o'clock Eastern time at overtime tonight. Ed Yardeni versus Eric Johnston on the markets. One bull, one bear. Got NXP earnings, as you heard. We'll see what the, they deliver, what it means to the chip trade. Adam Parker on how to be best positioned this week. Got Bryn Talkington on. We're going to catch up as well with Anthony Scaramucci. We'll get the latest on FTX, what's happening with him there. Uh, get his view on the Fed and the markets, too. So I'll see all of you in a few hours' time, 4 o'clock Eastern. In the OT, let's do final trades. Liz Young, you're first. Biotech today. I'm going to call this bubble wrapping your beta all the Bs. If you want growth, you can find it in healthcare. It's reasonably priced, particularly in biotech, and you're out of that rate-sensitive stuff. Okay. Thank you. Shannon? I talked about it earlier in the show, so Stryker. Um, this is a, more of a, a growth play in medical instruments uh, and equipment. Large growth reconstruction, or large joint reconstruction procedures are going to continue to accelerate. Okay. Just to reiterate, too, you added Medtronic. Correct. Right. So you're in that space uh, a little bit more. All right. Bill Baruch. 
UUP, the bullish dollar ETF. Uh, I think we get Jackson Hole Powell this week. And the euro, which is 57% of this, is a record long. And the last time the position was this big, the euro topped and began to a 22% sell-off. Okay. Joey T with the Joe T. Davida, look how happy I am. <laughs> Such a great hour. You're only irritable though. for 59 minutes and 48 seconds. Okay, I was happy throughout. Davida, healthcare <laughs> company, trades at 11 times, 95% U.S. Right. revenue exposure. All right, good stuff, Mr. Happy. All right, the exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.